The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. So namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue tonight speaking about the spirituality of Buddha, of Gautama Buddha, of the Buddha. I was commenting last time about the words of the Buddha contained in his famous sermon, the one in which he is said to have set the wheel of Dharma into motion, or better said in metaphysical terminology, where he brought his own contribution to the spirituality of this world. And last time when we spoke about part of his speech, he gave a paragraph which is beautifully like the blessings given by Jesus by saying, happy is he who has overcome all selfishness and so on. And he finishes by saying, happy is he who has found the truth And he uses this like when he has reached to the truth. You can see that from the triad of Godhead in the later global Hindu tradition, where God or the absolute, infinite, eternal, divine aspect of reality has been labeled by three words. The divine has been called Shivam Satyam Sundaram. Shivam means auspiciousness or goodness, like God is good, as echoed in the Christian tradition, where we speak about the good Lord, the good God, God being good. So Shivam, auspiciousness, that even though sometimes the interaction of the human being with the cosmic consciousness is scary because the conscious cos- the cosmic consciousness is way 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 bigger compared to the human being than an elephant is to an ant it's bigger than your ratio to an atom and because of this The human being, in a certain way, is relatively insignificant. Like the fact that 250,000 people die in a tsunami means nothing from the standpoint of the cosmic consciousness. It's something very, 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 very small compared to the size of the universe. That's just one point of view. That although the cosmic consciousness, and if you prefer God, can seem like terrible because it can walk on ants like an elephant. An elephant would never be aware of the fact that it's walking over some ant across its path. Like you can say that the greater purpose is being served always. And you can feel that sometimes perhaps the cosmic consciousness caring about the greater good, can sacrifice a tiny little ant or individual into the service of 
the planet, for example. Nevertheless, the great spiritualists have said no by a sort of a miraculous alchemy, by a sort of a miraculous omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, the cosmic consciousness manages to be good. It always manages to be auspicious. When Moses meets with his brothers who are coming in starvation because the people of Israel were starving and the one who had been abandoned and banished, he says, God has turned your evil into goodness. Like you, in your ignorance, tried to do something harmful. And look how the divine alchemy, look how powerful God is, that eventually something good came out of this. And therefore, what I'm saying here is, the first attribute is goodness. As you are going to see, Buddha completely subscribes to this goodness. Buddha is a great apostle of goodness and I personally praise him so much for having seen this aspect. While in some more Manipuristic cultures, people have seen God or the cosmic consciousness as something terrible, frightening, not to be toyed with. Buddha sees always, he insists very much on this aspect of goodness. But we'll get there. Fact is that this Shivam, Shivam as auspiciousness, the auspiciousness of divine, is there. And the second word is Shivam Satyam. God is truthfulness. And the truthfulness is not meant in a Svadistanistic, romantic, Hollywoodian way that you should be a nice person and tell the truth. All those of you who have been in the Satyam lecture of Agama, you know that truthfulness does not mean punctilious truthfulness. There are examples of fathers of the desert, ultra-scrupulous, ultra-ascetic Christian mystics adhering to a morality code millimetrically, and yet, when some criminal comes and hides because a posse is following him, the old man is hiding the criminal, and then when the posse comes half an hour later and says, we are looking for this dangerous highway robber, and he ran this way, didn't you see him passing by or something? The old man, while the guy was hiding in a box somewhere in a closet, he says, no. Like, to save the life of a man hunted by a posse, and you can say, but that posse was the justice. It was the strong arm of the law. We're talking about a criminal. Still, the father, that ancient, that elder, who was scrupulously moral, he had absolutely no qualm at looking in the eyes of those people and saying, no, I haven't seen him here. Because he thought that people should be given to the judgment of God. Not people should take judgment. Let God pass judgment. You mind your own business. Of course, that is not entirely applicable in all situations because sometimes we are dealing with active situations. No, you are dealing with a pedophile who is about to sexually abuse your child. 
And you cannot just shrug your shoulders and say, well, God will pass judgment. Like, as long as there is possible to do something, you would do. But when it comes like now, this old man, what could he do about the crimes of this fellow? He couldn't do anything. They couldn't be stopped. They belong to the past. And he actually produced a great change in the heart of this criminal by giving him so much compassion, by giving him so much forgiveness. And that's why Satyam does not mean this Vadistanistic Hollywood truthfulness. Satyam truthfulness means a reality. It means that we are asking, who am I? And we don't want to hear bullshit. We are asking, where am I? What is this? Who has created this universe? Is there a meaning to life? What am I doing here? To all these fundamental questions, we are asking for nothing less than truthfulness. Truthfulness means reality with a capital R. It means no delusion, no illusion, no lie. It means things are as they are. That's why as long as you haven't found God, you live in Maya. That's Maya. Maya is the antipode of it. By Maya, the Vedantin thinkers have said, actually everybody, even the very truthful people, they live in a lie. Because they live in Maya. And according to their limited ability, they tell to tell the truth. But they try to tell the truth about something which they don't perceive. Like somebody is asking, what about the woman in red? And you say, oh, the woman in red is lovely. You are lying. It's the matrix. It's the woman in red from the matrix. But because you don't know you are in the matrix, you say something which you think is true. It's not the absolute truth. It's not the reality. It's just the reality which corresponds to your ignorance, to your imperfect view. And that's why Maya makes that even the best truths of the ignorant people, they are ultimately still lies. That is why when Buddha speaks about the truth, he means about the divine truth, the absolute truth, which is inexpressible. When Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who was about to pass judgment of life and death upon him, asked Jesus to the face, what is the truth? Like, because Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth, which is God. And Pilate, being versed in Greek philosophy, he says, yeah, you're bearing witness to the truth. Like, there are a, a hundred crazy New Age people out there who claim all sorts of scandalous things, and each and every one of them thinks, honestly, that they are bearing witness to the truth. And they all should be committed in an institution. They are crazy people, and, but they honestly think that they bear witness to the truth. So, as Pilate, as the Greek philosophers knew, and Pilate knew it very well, this thing with the truth is a jerk-off, because it's a, it's a concept which has been misused for centuries, for millennia. There are many crazy people who live in a, in a hospice, in a mental hospital, and they think they are Napoleon. And they honestly think that they are Napoleon. That's their truth. And everybody else says bullshit. Put them in a straitjacket, you know. They are not. And therefore, 
what is the truth? And Pilate rightly asked him, like, you are just the 101st New Ager. You are just another hippie. Because, of course, Pilate never saw him walking on water or raising the dead. And all those things sounded so incredible. And now there comes another hippie who says another New Age bizarro, weirdo, who comes and says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Haven't we heard that before? There were people who cut off their balls and committed suicide. Like they gave the supreme sacrifice, the sacrifice of their life, thinking that aliens will come and take their souls on the Hale-Bob comet. It happened in 1995. No? Like they thought they were bearing witness to the truth. For them, that was their truth. And they were ready to give their lives for that truth. And therefore, Pilate was laughing to the face of Jesus and said, yeah, what's the, what is the truth? No, like, you are coming and bullshitting me, you know, I'm educated in Greek philosophy, you know, the truth is not where, what is the truth? And Jesus was the truth, as he said it himself. The truth, even Jesus could not give an explanatory note, like Jesus remained silent in front of Pilate, like, you are watching it. He didn't say it. He was just standing there. Like, you cannot answer verbally to the question, what is the truth? The truth is God, and God cannot be expressed by words. And that's why the actual truth, with a capital T, is a transcendent concept. It's a concept which belongs to Shiva, to Purusha. It's an absolute concept, and Shakti is reflecting it like there are truths in the manifestation, but those, those truths are limited. They are partial. They are imperfect because the perfection cannot exist in a world which is measured by space and time. And that is why this Buddha insists in the next verses on his angle is that God, this supreme goal which he describes, is the truth. It's the reality, the unspeakable reality, the ineffable reality, the unpronounceable reality. That's what he's talking about. It is very interesting that although in the Buddhist tradition there is a cult of beauty, it's enough to go to a Buddhist temple and to see that although in a particularly flashy, colorful way, still there is a beauty in the form, in the architecture, in the decoration, in the aesthetics of it. There is a beauty. So beauty is cultivated. We can say that Buddha statues are beautiful. We can say that temple roofs are beautiful. We can say that golden walls decorated with mirrors and with, I don't know what else, mother of the pearl or whatever. They are beautiful. There is an aesthetic in illustrating divine things. Nevertheless, Buddha insists least of all on this beauty because the third is Sundaram. Hindus, the tantric tradition and the general Hindu tradition later, says Brahman, the divine consciousness is Shiva Satyam Shivam Satyam Sundaram is auspicious or good, it is truthful, which means it's real, it's the reality, and it is beautiful. Confronted with the divine, the human being always is in awe, like Rumi expresses it. Rumi says, 
Today I found you and I wish I could watch you with a hundred eyes. I wish I had a hundred eyes. Like I can't get enough of you. You are so beautiful. You are so magnificent. There is a beauty which is a transcendent beauty. It's not a beauty of the form. It's not a beauty of the name. It's not. It's a beauty which is simply the supreme reality. Sometimes people say, look at the sun. The sun, even when it's a scorching bastard, it's still beauty. There is beauty in the sun because the sun gave us light and life and gives us. The sun, although frightening and terrible and burning and punishing sometimes, there is a beauty about the sun. This, this amazing shining and radiance of the sun, it's enchanting somehow. So much more, infinitely more than the sun is the divine. When the yogis of India want to describe Ajna Chakra or Sahasrara, they say this chakra shines with the splendor of 10,000 suns and 10,000 moons. Or sometimes they go to millions of suns and moons. Why? Because the sun is also fascinating, beautiful, and God is like millions of times more beautiful, gazillions of times more beautiful than the sun itself. The sun is just a pale reflection of what the divine consciousness is. This aspect of beauty, which appears in all the religions, because when they do Buddha statues, they try to make them beautiful. There is an aesthetical way of illustrating the body of Buddha and everything. You know, the, the smile of Buddha, the eyes of Buddha. Nevertheless, this beauty thing came a bit later in the Buddhist traditions. Like, it's a bit of a more tantric thing, because the beauty refers very often to something which we can see. It's something which shines in samsara. How would you, find, would you define the beauty of the void? It's very hard. It's a very abstract thing, and beauty is not the first word which you put on it. You would put truthfulness, because sometimes truthfulness is abysmal, and it is frightening, and it is... But beauty, beauty you would put on a supernova, on a quasar, on a star, on, not on something which is full, not on something which is empty. That's why in the early Buddhist tradition, it's more these two aspects of the divine, Shivam and Satyam, which are emphasized. And Buddha insists on these, and his preaching, his sermon, is not insisting so much on the beauty aspect, which, for example, tantrics have endorsed. Like you look at a Tamil Hindu Shaiva temple from the south of India. Those temples which had that specific shape with that specific roof and which are carved in marble and stone. And everybody who looks at them, even at a superficial look, finds a harmony in the forms of it. I don't know why, but it's beautiful. You look at the chief mosque of Samarkand, of Tashkent, of Central Asia, all the Islamic monuments of Central Asia, of Persia, of Afghanistan, where you find still remaining historical some of those amazing mosques. And in the moment when you see that blue dome with that shape, which is a little bit like a Shivalinga and a little bit like a nuclear reactor and a little bit like an astronomical observatory or like a planetarium, you go like, yeah, it's beautiful. 
There is a beauty. Every religion is trying to express in a way or another either its Byzantine icons or its Buddha Khmer statues with a mysterious thing on top of the head of Buddha or it is an Islamic temple or it is a a six-pointed star or whatever it is. Everybody is trying to illustrate this beauty. This is a more tantric aspect because it refers to something like temples, architecture, proportions, energy. Buddha is a little bit more severe, more dry. In this first sermon, he shows that he sees more the two aspects. I wouldn't want ever to say that the vision of Buddha is incomplete, because it isn't. But it's like he likes to insist, because he gives a method. He is making a sermon by which he is going to give to the world a method, a path, his path. And his path was not a path in which there was too much beauty. He ran away from home in the middle of the night. That's not very beautiful. He went into the forest. He lived in total deprivation. That's not very beautiful. He went skeletic like a living, like a walking skeleton because he did some fasting tapas where he ate just a grain of rice every day and that's not very beautiful as well like his path was more a bit of a torturing path severe austere path and only in the end as a great discovery he discovers that it's not necessary to push yourself so much that you need to be balanced that you shouldn't stretch the string too much or too little that you have to find the middle path But he would not say that you make a beautiful painting. He would not say that you create an aesthetical music, that you watch some aesthetical dance, or you go into the sunset, and there in that beauty you will find the divine. For him, this dimension of beauty, although in the later Buddhist tradition it's there, he does not emphasize it. His path is a little bit more focused on the other two. And that's why he takes first up the truth. The truth is indeed reality. He has this discriminative mind. What is Maya and what is not Maya? Who are you truly? What is the nature of existence? You know, people refuse to say the first noble truth, that the nature of existence is suffering. You can say, but the nature of existence is bliss. Yes, at the same time, because the universal truth is beyond words, and both opposites are true. That's why you can't really express God's truth in words. Because it's true that the existence is suffering. Buddha has said it so clearly. And it's also true that existence is bliss. Buddha has not stated that because he chose to state the painful one because he thought people will be motivated by seeing, instead of seeing the carrot, seeing the whip, the, the, the thorn behind them. There are other religions which promise you bliss, happiness, ananda. Those rely more on the carrot than on the whip. But the truth is that there is a whip and there is a carrot. There is valley and there is hill. There is pleasure and there is pain. There is night and there is day. There is yin and there is yang. Nothing comes alone. Everything comes in polarities. That's why this is all pedagogic. 
the Vijnana Bhairava says you cannot say anything about Shiva, about Bhairava, the cosmic consciousness, which is not false in some way. If you say existence is bliss, then Buddha will come and say existence is suffering. If you say existence is suffering, then Shankaracharya will come and will say pure existence is bliss. And who is right? Both are right because words cannot express something which is absolute, which is beyond mind, beyond the kalpas, beyond space and time. And that's why let's follow it in the way of the Buddha. Take it as Buddha took it because there is a pedagogic to it. There is a pedagogy. There is something to be learned. And he concluded therefore saying happy is he who has found the truth. And then he goes. Truth is noble and sweet. Really this paragraph because he talks about two paragraphs about the truth. It's almost like the raving of Paul in his letter to the Corinthians where he said love is truthful and kind. Love never boasts. Love forgives everything. He gives that incredible goosebump giving paragraph about love. Here, Buddha gives the same thing but not about love because his path is not the love of the heart. His love is an intellectualized metaphysical love which he calls loving kindness, not love which he calls compassion. And therefore, Buddha now raves, it's a goosebump paragraph, but about the truth, praise to the truth, not praise to love. It doesn't mean that Buddha would not praise love, but that's not his path right now. His path is a path of clarity and discrimination. And he says, truth is noble and sweet. Truth can deliver you from evil. There is no savior in the world except truth. These are such powerful statements. Truth is noble and sweet. Indeed, the knowers of the divine, they went to dwell in that divine consciousness, which for other people is frightening. Try to think how many people living in ignorance and in ego, they hate God. I know somebody, the brother of a friend, their mother just passed away three months ago. Then this guy who is an adult human being, a grown up man of 40 something, now he hates God. He disbelieves in, he was a boy living with his mom, unmarried, no relationship this abnormal type of 44-something, 40 years old bachelor, living with his mom, having an abnormal attachment, almost pathological, to his mom. His umbilical cord had not been cut away. And of course, when his mom finally died, which was inevitable, as he should have known from the beginning, then he goes into overdrive. Now he hates God. He doesn't think that there is God. Or if there is God, God is a mean bastard because God took his mom. If you tell him, yeah, but it was bound to happen. His mom was 70-something years old. Like He says, yeah, but he took her too early. Like that's jerking off because he would have done the same thing when she would have been 80-something. It's His problem is his ignorance, his attachment, his pain. 
That's why many people, when they are confronted with the truth, they hate it, they fear it, they go away from it, but not for Buddha. Buddha says if you have reached the level of consciousness, then truth is noble and sweet. Noble is a beautiful word. I have seldom heard it used. It's not so much used in Christianity because there they are afraid that noble will make a a direction to aristocracy and therefore to pride and arrogance, to social vanity. But the Buddhists have used, and in India, they often use this attribute noble, the four noble truths, the noble path to enlightenment. For them, noble is a word which resonates with Vishuddha Chakra. Vishuddha Chakra is what makes the human being noble. Noble, the Vishuddha Chakra gives a princely refinement, an aristocratic but not egocentric, a sort of refinement which makes things noble. Like Buddha, in the moment when he becomes enlightened, he's noble. In the traditional caste systems of the world, either we talk about the Buddhist monks of Japan, or we talk about the Brahmins of India, or we talk about the clergy of medieval Europe, these people were higher than the aristocrats. The aristocratic class, which was called in India the Kshatriyas, the warrior class, is not the highest caste. The highest caste are the Brahmins. The Kshatriyas are noble, and they carry weapons, and they are the bosses. But even higher than them are supposed to be the Brahmins. The Brahmins are more noble than the noble because they own the aristocracy of the spirit. Buddha, when he reaches enlightenment, is more noble than any king in this world. There is no king that can be as noble as Buddha unless that king committed himself to meditation and reached enlightenment. But the biggest aristocratic person, the richest, wealthiest, most powerful is not as noble as Buddha because nobleness comes from the refinement of Vishuddha Chakra. It's a resonance with the truth, Satyam, the Vaksidi of Vishuddha Chakra. And that's why, indeed, Buddha is right. Truth is noble. And then he says sweet. Sweet is like soothing. It shouldn't be taken literally like Remember that Jesus, in a different context, he tells to the disciples, to his apostles, you are the salt of this earth. Well, what is better, salt or sweet? Both are just metaphors, not to be taken literally, depending on each culture, depending on which civilization and what values you talk about. That's not the point. The point is, that, of course, he uses here a positive metaphor. Truth is noble and sweet. Truth can deliver you from evil. It is exactly the same thing which Jesus says. Jesus says, know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And free includes free from the evil, free from any bondage, free from any suffering. Jesus says that the same. Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
Buddha has said it 500 years before. Truth can deliver you from evil. Evil means so many things. But remember that the ultimate evil for Buddha is suffering. And that is produced by ignorance. Therefore, truth is the antidote to ignorance and therefore to suffering. And he says, there is no savior in the world except truth. Again, mysteriously echoing him. That's why many people think that Jesus must have been in India and must have heard Buddhist sermons preached because some of the values which Jesus brings, they are so resonant with some of the things which Buddha said. Buddha said, There is no savior in the world except truth. And Jesus says, I am the life, the path, and the truth. Jesus goes one step further. But in the exception of metaphysics, Buddha is a man who here and now in this life has reached nirvana. And therefore he is a Buddha. And Jesus is not a man who stood on his head and did vipassana. Jesus is the divine spirit incarnated with a salvational mission on earth. So Jesus actually is the savior. He comes as a savior and he is labeled savior. There is no savior in the world except truth. And 500 years later, it actually did get born in flesh and blood and walked on the surface of the earth for about 33 years. So both are converse and you see how much they dovetail these things that Buddha and Jesus in some places they say amazingly, amazingly similar things. There is no savior in the world except truth. Know the truth. Reach the truth. Your meditation, everything which you do is just an attempt for the truth. Reach the truth, you have reached salvation. Don't reach the truth, you are still living in some level of maya. Remember, even the gods are not free from maya. There's a very beautiful legend in India, a very beautiful Purana, that Indra, the king of the gods, that's the king of the gods, and it's like the equivalent of Zeus from Indian mythology, and of Jupiter from the Roman mythology, and of Thor from the Scandinavian mythology. It's the symbol of the planet Jupiter, and of the spiritual influence which happens today, in the day of Thursday, which is the day of Thor, therefore the day of Jupiter. And Indra, Jupiter, Thor, it's the same. Indra is going a bit crazy. When you read Greek mythology, you can see that Zeus is doing some stupid things from time to time. Or Scandinavian mythology. Like these gods are not the supreme cosmic consciousness. They are very high, very powerful entities, but they still haven't seen the truth. They don't know really the ultimate truth. If they would know the ultimate truth, They would commit themselves to meditation. They would do what Gautama Buddha did. Funnily enough, Gautama Buddha and others like him, they are superior to Jupiter, Indra, Thor. 
Indra is a kid compared to Buddha. Although Indra is a god and very powerful, Indra cannot compete spiritually with Buddha because Buddha has seen the truth and Indra is still having some veils of Maya. Indra goes megalomanic and he's asking Prajapati and the, the other guy, I forgot his name right now, the, the, the equivalent of Hephaestus, the blacksmith of the gods, the master builder of the gods, he's asking that fellow to build him palaces. He says, I want a magic palace that could be seen but not seen, which is, which is and yet it isn't, which has, you know. He asks for some really phantasmagoric, bizarre things, which of course in the world of the gods are possible. It's exactly like the Sistine Chapel or the San Peter Church in Rome or like the pyramids of Egypt. It's some sort of incredible feat of architecture, divine architecture, mental architecture, because the gods live in a world of mind and what they build, they don't build with shovels. They build with their Shambhavi Mudra. And in the world of Shambhavi Mudra, a lot of things are possible. And he keeps on asking this builder, Build me this, build me that. Been like, I want to, you know, I want the whole world to see how great the world of gods is, and that we here in Devachan, we here in the Devaloka, in the world of the Devas, we are great. We are the greatest of all the Lokas. Let people worship, you know, look up to the world of gods. And then this builder of the gods, who momentarily he is even wiser than his king, he basically rings the bell. He has a bell somewhere which goes up in the upper floor which he doesn't see. But like he calls the attention of the upper divine consciousness. Like down here something is a bit amiss. Like even our king Indra, he is hypnotized by... Now he started believing himself a little bit too big. A little bit too important. It's not that he's evil. He's just a bit megalomanic. You know, He's going a bit too far. And then the divine consciousness answers. And the story is a bit long, but I'm going to tell it to you. That's one of the classical myths of India. That suddenly at the gate of the palace of Indra, there appears a beautiful baby. A child, a small child. And this child bears all the auspicious divine signs. Like he's beautiful, divine beyond measure. He probably has a halo around his head and shining golden and everything. And it's like he's recognized instantaneously because the gods can see. They have vision. And he's recognized like, oh my God, this is the noblest of the noblest. This child is Whatever it is, it's coming from the noblest of the noblest of places. So Indra, still having his wits by him, he invites this child like an honored guest. He puts him on a throne. He gives him food. He treats him like the most honorable guest of his palace. And then the child starts laughing. <coughs> and Indra says, uh, honorable child, like he, he treats him like a Brahmin, like a holy man. He says, honorable child, why did you laugh? At which the child says, don't make me tell you this, because it will be a source of suffering for you. And Indra, of course, insists, because he is the king, and he wants his way. And the child says, well, you see, there is a line of ants crawling on the floor here, and transporting their food or whatever. The interesting thing is that I've seen clearly that in a previous life, each one of these ants was Indra.
of a universe. And of course, Indra is shocked to the bone, like this child, which is divine, tells him, you are nothing. Tomorrow you might be an ant. Like, how significant are you? They are here about 10,000 ants crawling. These are 10,000 Indras from previous cosmic cycles. Like, it puts him down so much, and it shows him, it, it moves him, like, how small he is compared to the universe and to existence. And then suddenly at the door of the palace, there appears an ascetic, one of these Indian ascetics with dreadlocks and looking terrible. And again, Indra is like, wow, two great visits in the same day, and he greets this. And of course, the story tells us that this child is Vishnu, the preserver, a part of God which preserves the universe, and the great ascetic is none else than Shiva himself who heard the bell ringing up there in their loft, and they came down to kind of set things right, to shake Indra. And this guy is coming, and he's having a weird thing. He has a hairy chest, but the middle of his chest is bald. He has like a spot where there is no hair on his chest. And after he greets him and treats him and, you know, touches his feet and honors him in multiple ways, Indra again cannot hold his mouth and says, it's a, you are having a very odd look. What is this patch of hair? Are you having suffering from some disease? Are you shedding or what? And again the ascetic tells him, you won't like the answer. Don't ask me. You don't want to know that. And he says, oh yeah, but I do. And then the ascetic hits him another low blow by telling him every time when a cosmic cycle is over and an Indra passes away, one of my hairs of the chest is falling off. And he says, as you can see, about half of them have fell, have fallen by now. And then Indra comes out of Maya because Indra is not saved. He did not find the reality. He does not live in truth. He has, he can see things which you don't see, but he cannot see what Shiva sees. He cannot see what Buddha sees. Indra still has some dreams. So even the gods that live in Devachan, even the gods that live in the high mental levels and the gods that live in the causal levels, they are not free of illusion. There is a certain kind of illusion still persisting there. For example, they don't realize total oneness. Indra does not realize that he is one and the same with others, with Kamadeva or with other gods. They still think they are, it's me and them. But Shiva knows, I am, I am that. All is one. There's just one cosmic actor playing all the roles of this universe. The diversity is the ultimate illusion. There is no diversity. These, the gods cannot fathom. So the gods are still hypnotized by some maya where they see some difference and they believe still in that difference. Therefore, Indra automatically goes into panic because he is smart enough, he is spiritual enough, he is superhuman so much and he realizes, what the heck am I doing here? I am asking Prajapati to build castles and meanwhile, I don't know Shiva and Vishnu, and I don't know reality. So he goes into overdrive, 
and then he says, I want to leave my palace and to become an ascetic and kind of do meditation, like Buddha, reach nirvana. Indra envies the spiritual practitioners. And then it's too much. Then Vishnu and Shiva have to convince him, but Indra, you have been put here by providence. You have been put here by the dharma, by the cosmic order. This is a karma yoga that you are doing. You cannot just shed it and run away. You cannot just shirk your duty because now suddenly you got a lot of spiritual aspiration. You can do meditation, but you still have to fulfill your duties as the king of the gods until your cosmic cycle is over and you can be relieved of your duties. So there is a middle path. Indra is going blinded and then he is going into fanaticism. And Shiva and Vishnu have to educate him like they see things which he doesn't see. They see a wisdom which he does not see. And that is why Buddha's statement there is no savior in the world except truth is very powerful. If there is no ultimate truth there is it's not about the little truth that old man said a blatant lie to save a life but he was living in the truth he said that lie because that lie was produced by a higher truth there was a higher truth which said that he should do that that saving a life saving a soul was more important because Jesus, who was his master, his virtual guru, Jesus has said very clearly, for God does not wish the death of the sinner, but the redressing of the sinner. Like death is the last instance. Like it makes some things inevitable. It's, you can't turn it back. Everything should be tried before death. God would prefer to see repentance, redressing, revival, regeneration. That's why that man told a lie while living in truth with a capital T. And Buddha continues his beautiful sermon about the truth. For him, the truth is an outline of his path. He says, have confidence in truth although you may not be able to comprehend it there will be people who will see Jesus acting who will see Buddha acting who will see Rumi or Milarepa acting who will see that man in our story acting and they would not understand it they would think come on something is really bizarre here for example Judas told to Jesus clearly at some point where he brought Jesus to the temple and Jesus instead of trying to be a bit diplomatic with those priests and saying come on I'm a Jew like all of you I'm just pro promoting the religion of our fathers and ancestors I just happen to walk on water and raise the dead and kind of I'm no, I can promote these things. I am a man who is going to, to reinforce our faith in the whole nation. Like, I am with you. I am the spearhead 
of our religion. He antagonized them. He really went and gave them the finger and produced a very egotic, very wounded reaction from the priests, from the Jewish priests of that time, who got very pissed off at this hippie who was coming and rubbing it in their face right there. In, and when they left, Judah said, look, that those guys were just trying to understand. Like they were trying to kind of have a dialogue with you and you have been totally intolerant, totally provocative. Like you, all, you are almost looking for trouble. Why are you doing that? Like it would have costed you just a little bit of patience and a little bit of political diplomacy, which later you would have pulled it your way. But Jesus didn't want to have it that way. And he said, I don't understand why you behave like this. And Jesus tells him it's because you try to understand with your mind. He says, don't try to understand with your mind. He says, open your heart and your eyes. Opening the heart is like non, not thinking. It's nirvikalpa. It's presence. And opening the eyes resonates with the definition of the state of nirvana as given by the Buddhists of Japan, where the Zen Buddhists define nirvana by the word satori, which means direct vision. Like, open your eyes and see. You are drinking a cup of tea. You've never looked at that cup of tea. If you'd look at it, you'd reach nirvana. You just have to see, not think about it, not feel it, not evaluate it. Just be in this pure consciousness. That's why Buddha is right again, because he says the human beings, when confronted with a higher truth, they can't understand it. Peter also can't see it. He tells to Jesus, oh, you had a vision that if you go to Jerusalem, they are going to crucify you. Then don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus tells him, you think like men think. You don't think like God thinks. Like the funny thing was that the divine consciousness wanted Jesus to go through this as paradoxical as it sounded because this act had a role in the salvation of the world. It was a landmark in the history of the world. Jesus needed to come and do what he did. So it needed to happen. It doesn't justify the people that did it, because they did it with darkness in their mind. But darkness exists. It's a pre-existing thing. If there is no light, there is no darkness. If there is no darkness, there is no shadow, there is no light. Therefore, we don't often understand it because we try to evaluate the truth as the lower level of the truth, as the truth of the intellect, as a philosophical, metaphysical truth. And Buddha says, have confidence in the truth. This is the way of Buddha of expressing the need of faith. Buddha doesn't call it faith. He simply says, have confidence in the truth although you may not be able to comprehend it. Like there are four noble truths. And the first noble truth is that the nature of existence is suffering. Have confidence, even if you don't understand it. This is what decides if you follow the path or not. If you say, no, bullshit, Buddha must have been wrong, then you don't trust, you don't have confidence in the truth as Buddha saw it. And therefore, you are not ready to follow the path. 
you are not on the path because you have no faith. There is a faith which is coming from the superior places. So many places. Now, Jesus himself, whom I quote so often because Jesus, unlike Buddha, he's avatara, he's divine incarnation. And Jesus' divine incarnation on the cross experiences moments, minutes, perhaps hours, where he doesn't feel God and bliss and pure consciousness anymore. And he cries in agony by seeing, by screaming, my God, my God, why have you left me? And still he did not say, okay, I was bullshitting, just kidding, take me down from the cross, I recant. He didn't recant. He had a sort of a confidence which simply said, I'm not schizophrenic. I'm not wrong. This is right. I'm not a crazy megalomanic who thinks he's the son of God. I know he had confidence in the truth. Many people think that Jesus must have been a walk in the park. You ignore the human nature You ignore the human nature of Jesus that he was a man like you and I. He had a brain. He had a nervous system. His brain worked just like your and my brain works. With doubts. With questions. You ignore the human nature of Buddha. And you you forget that Buddha himself may have thought, Am I crazy? Am I doing something too big? I have witnessed states of consciousness in which one day you see the divine consciousness with a clarity which can be echoed only by the words of Ramakrishna who when he was asked by Vivekananda, his disciple, what is this God that you keep talking about because it's like, can you see it? Vivekananda was a rational. He wanted to see like Thomas the unbeliever wanted to see the wounds in the palms of Jesus to know that he really resurrected. And Ramakrishna gave him a mind-blowing answer. Ramakrishna looked at him with a sincerity. Either he was crazy or he was right. And he simply told him, I can see God better than I can see you now. Like the physical vision is nothing compared to the divine vision. And when you have it, you see And I can witness to the fact that one moment you can have that vision, maybe for hours in a row, and you can say, right now, I see it. It's like it's so no doubt about it. And then tomorrow morning, you wake up, and as you walk to do some, to run some errands, your monkey mind, which has come back to its stupid games, says, well, what if God doesn't exist at all? Am I crazy? Am I schizophrenic? Like one, one moment I see it like Ramakrishna and there is not a doubt in the world and the next moment my monkey mind is playing games. This has happened to Buddha. This has happened to Jesus. This has happened to Ramakrishna. It has happened to Rumi, to Milarepa, to Saint Teresa of Avila, to whoever, you name it. Everybody has had it. It's part of having a body and a brain and a mind. That's why Buddha knows. He says, have confidence in the truth, although you may not be able to comprehend it. Like 
choose one of the truths and then have confidence in it because if the truth has worked for Jesus, it has worked for Milarepa and for Teresa of Avila, it works for you. It is there. It's normal to be surrounded by doubts. Have confidence in truth, he says, although you may not be able to comprehend it. Although you may suppose its sweetness to be bitter. Like, right, we are just ants in a cruel cosmic game. We are cannon fodder. The cosmic consciousness is using me and you as pawns for populating this planet and eventually the whole universe. Isn't it true that if we don't nuke ourselves out of existence, if humanity continues to exist another 5,000 years, another 10,000 years, another 20, 100, a million years, we are going to conquer the universe? Like we are going to develop such amazing science that it will be possible to travel in space, to travel in time, to travel instantaneously. It will be possible for our descendants, if we will have descendants, it will be possible for those humans to conquer the universe. Every planet of this universe can be populated, terraformed, given an atmosphere. If we would have 10 milarepas, 10 milarepas will concentrate upon Mars, and will materialize an atmosphere of Mars from Akasha, from the ether, and then Mars will become suddenly inhabitable, just because we don't need ten milarepas. We need one. One can do the job. Shiva can do a Shambhavi mudra, and all the planets of this system can become inhabitable instantaneously. That's why I'm saying it's just a matter of advancement of the spirit. We live in a bubble. We live in a soap bubble where we live in an illusion where we are completely conditioned by our history, by our space and time. But remember that there is a great, great reality and in this great reality, sometimes the truth is bitter. Like, why did some people live in the 15th century and they slept with lice on their body and they were not washing themselves more than once a year, and they had rots crawling over their body in the night, and they lived in garbage and in misery, and they were plagued by plague and cholera and smallpox and a million other things, and they live an ignorant, fanatic, bigotic, religious life with a lot of dirt and violence and war and injustice, so that 10,000 years from now or 10 million years from now, some superhumans will sit and meditate, conquering the universe with their spirit. But then these people who build it, they are cannon fodder. All that flesh was painfully tortured. So much war, so much starvation, so much plague and cholera, so much. And it's all to build a dharma, the will of God, some purpose that we don't understand, some way in which Shiva fertilizes Shakti, in which Purusha populates Prakriti, in which atoms, from becoming apparently inanimate, they become animate. No, what am I? I am something which stole 
a hundred and something kilos of atoms from the nature and now those a hundred and something kilos of matter sit in front of you and say I am Shiva I am that I am the consciousness therefore I borrowed atoms which could have been dust from dust till dust and yet this dust is sitting in front of you and it's pure consciousness and therefore I'm saying what does life do what does consciousness do it takes matter stellar dust and it transforms this stellar dust in consciousness what if there were hundred more a million times more than me and you there would be so many kilos of stellar dust what when every planet of this solar system will be filled up with people like you and I what when every planet in this galaxy will be filled up with people like you and I what would be when the conditions of life will be so powerful that we will be able to go and live in the aura of the Sun we will become citizens of the Sun in our astral body living in a world of golden yellow light in a world of shining realize it is you can look at the bitter part of the truth and say God is a cruel slave master so much sexual abuse so much violence so much dirt so much disease so much pain for what for God to fulfill his wet dream of in living enlivening the universe is it worth it for the ignorant is never worth it the truth of what we are who are we the truth is painful and bitter for the people who serve their ego the, but people like Buddha are having an orgasm when they see the truth they say it's so sweet there is such a greatness in that plague and cholera from the 15th century there is such a meaning you are focusing on the bitter thing of it so Buddha says have confidence in the truth although you may suppose its sweetness to be bitter because you are egocentric and you try to serve the purposes of an egocentric creature as Jesus said you think as people think not as God thinks God thinks in ways which for the limited individual can sound unacceptable bitter painful that's why bitter painful things are allowed to happen because they are part of a much greater truth but that truth has to be discovered if we don't discover it we suffer we always think that it's something about us that it's something which hits us back although the third statement so he says although you might not be able to comprehend it although you may suppose its sweetness to be bitter although you may shrink from it at first like in the beginning there would be people who would say I don't I can't see this Ramakrishna got so crazy and at the same time so powerful because of his craziness he got so carried on by his divine spirit that at some point 
he was, you know, he was having these enthusiastic things. He was an Aquarius, astrologically, and he was behaving in a very Aquarian, enthusiastic way. And at some point he was singing, you know, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, or Om Namah Shivaya, or Om Mata Devi, or whatever. And he was so ecstatic, and he was so carried, and he could see that everybody was trying to follow him, but they didn't really. And then at some point he said, Oh, how much I wish that you could all share the divine vision right now, this moment. Like, you know, enthusiasm. This kind of like, why wait? How much I wish that you could see what I see. In a certain way, I say the same. But I'm not an Aquarian. So I'm not as Italian like Ramakrishna. You know, I'm not so extrovert and buoyant. I have a different temperament. Therefore, Ramakrishna goes fully Indian, fully Hindu, fully Bhakti. And he says, oh, how much I wish that. And he says it, meaning it. And as he says it, meaning it, he goes in such a state of samadhi where he suddenly realizes that he can actually take people in that state. And then, like crazy, he stands up and he starts touching people like Krishna did with Arjuna. And in the moment when he touched them, he touched approximately 14 people. Every person who was touched, who had the incredible chance to be there that night, like there were people who were absent that evening, and they probably shot themselves through their brains, you know, like that, why the heck did I miss last night, you know? Last night was the night when our guru went crazy and stepped over the line and did it. He suddenly gets crazy, And he starts touching them and puts them in samadhi. It's the same what Jesus did. Jesus goes transfigured. He prays to God. He starts weeping. He goes in ecstasy. And then he starts, he takes a piece of bread and he splits it and he says, eat it. This is my flesh. And he says, whoever shall eat this bread, like right here tonight. There were other people who didn't join that dinner. The Last Supper. And then these people come to the Last Supper and he takes a simple thing like a piece of bread and he says eat and they share it. And he says whoever eats this bread shall have eternal life. Like God is sitting there with you and he said if you tasted it, you've got it. You are all... And by the way, Judas was not there. He had run to do his betrayal. So it was true to the letter. It was true to the millimeter. Eleven people were there. They ate the bread. And 50 days later they got enlightened. On the day of the Pentecost. They reached Samadhi. By grace. Therefore. This is. So Jesus also had his moment of. Total explosion like this. Ramakrishna had it. Ramakrishna paid for it. Jesus got on the cross. But not only because of that. Because of a much bigger picture. And Ramakrishna, after he did this, he was diagnosed with throat cancer. He didn't have throat cancer when he did this. But later, he had it. So Ramakrishna goes apeshit. He puts 14 people in samadhi. And guess what? One of them came three days later and asked him to stop it. One of them, simply as Buddha says, Although you may shrink from it at first. This man had a job. He had a damn job in the Indian government. 
which was the British government in that time, but he was a Hindu clerk in the British India government. And he had a family, and he was a responsible man. He had to put bread on the table for his kids. And he said, every time when I was in my office, and I couldn't do any job, like I didn't give a rat's ass on the Indian government and anything. I was sitting there in bliss, and he said, wherever I was looking, even at the shelves of the walls, I could see only God. Even the books in the shelves were God. Everywhere where I looked, there was God. And I couldn't get any job done. Like maybe he was an accountant, or he couldn't do accounts anymore. He was gone completely. And then he said funny thing. He said, I remembered something from the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna had the same reaction. And I thought I might be able to go crazy. Like if this continues, it might be... See, he was in Samadhi, but he still worried he could go crazy. Like it doesn't come with a total, absolute, unshakable belief. Because you'd say, if I would be in Samadhi... I would be 100% with God and I would know what is what. That's what you imagine. You have a romantic view about how samadhi is or what it is. Because everybody is longing for a sort of absolute certitude. That I want to go in a state of consciousness where there is no more doubt. Only when you reach the bhava samadhi of a Jesus, then you can say that you know. Because you walk on water. You say... Lazarus come forth and Lazarus does come forth and then you have to be totally idiotic not to realize that you are that but otherwise if you are not in that state if you haven't reached that pinnacle even somebody in Samadhi can still have games of the mind if it's not a permanent Nirvikalpa Samadhi in which you black out completely and this disciple of Ramakrishna he simply went to Ramakrishna and he said, Sir, like, thank you for putting me in Samadhi the other day, but I think I'm going crazy. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to make my family into beggars. I, they will die of starvation because I'm the only provider for my family. So he said, stop it. And Ramakrishna simply said, he simply prayed to Kali and he said, okay, mother, take it back from him. And it stopped like that. And then when he was interviewed 10 years later, he said, I was the big, then Ramakrishna was dead already. And then this guy was saying, like, I was the biggest imbecile in the world. Because probably by then his family had gone. Some of them might have died already. Like he, he could see, it was just illusion. Everything was flowing. The thing which he considered so precious that he sacrificed his samadhi for it, it was just water under a river. Water under a bridge. It was a river flowing under the bridge. Now it isn't tomorrow. It, now it is tomorrow. It isn't. It's Maya. It's just illusion. And for that Maya, he had actually taken away his state of Samadhi. And he says, I was the biggest idiot in the world. He said that it's true that I remember it. A spiritual power stayed with me because of that. But the other... 14, 13, 12, whatever people, they were so much smarter. They stayed with it and they kind of took advantage. They piggybacked on the madness of Ramakrishna. They kind of got it for free from Ramakrishna and they had the stamina to stay with it. That's why Buddha says it beautifully. Have confidence in the truth 
And the truth is you are that. The truth is you are God. The truth is you are not here to build a shoe factory. The truth is so much deeper. And he says, have confidence in the truth, although you may shrink from it at first. It's so scary. It goes against all the patterns of our mind, and it is so scary. Says Buddha, concluding, trust in truth. You can all say, but Swami, we haven't seen or heard the truth. Yes, you did, because it was expressed by Jesus. It was expressed by Buddha. It was expressed by Krishna. It was expressed by all the big ones. You can see where the truth is. But then, can you doubt it? Of course you can doubt it. No? There are so many books written by atheistic people who are called the God delusion or God is not great or others, you know, because they cannot believe in any truth neither in Krishna's nor in Buddha's nor in Jesus's those people are at such a crude level of development at such a green level of development that somehow they don't have the maturity the subconscious peace (coughs) to assimilate the truth and what will happen those people will simply go through samsara again and again and again and again, until like an apple which starts getting ripe, the apple is not green, but it starts becoming pale green, yellowish, streaks of red appear on it, and then one day the apple is fully ripe, red, ready for picking. That's how spirituality happens to the human being. There are spirits which have been gorillas just 10 lifetimes ago and they are not yet prepared to become Buddhas. They still need 500 lifetimes as human beings. (coughs) They still need lots of doubts and ignorance and lots of banging their head and lots of going to hell and lots of negative karma and lots of ups and downs to just become ripe. There is no way of stopping the evolution of the spirit. Remember, neither Krishna, nor Jesus, nor Buddha, nor anybody did make efforts like, oh, everybody should get enlightened. You cannot, because some people are not ready, even if Krishna touches them, then they will come later and say, stop it, it's too much. Arjuna, who was the friend of Krishna and the spiritual man in Treta Yuga, in Dvapara Yuga, like a very spiritual man in a very spiritual age, And after Krishna touched him on the forehead and gave him a state of samadhi, he said, now Krishna, stop it because I'm going mad. Like, when you are in that state, you can't do your daily jobs. There is too much ecstasy. There is too much vision. There is too much synchronicity and meaning. There is something which goes beyond the beyond. And that's why even Arjuna didn't resist to it. That's why not everybody is cut for samadhi in this lifetime. And the only way to make yourself ripe is to practice. Nothing can replace the spiritual practice unless you came as a very high soul, as a very evolved soul from a previous life already and you are a sort of a bodhisattva, you are a 95% of a Buddha 
and then you do a little bit more practice and suddenly for you it's like hand in glove. You are like made for it. Somehow spirituality flows for you like you've always been ready for that. And other people envy you and they think, how the heck is she doing it? How the heck is he doing it? But remember for the normal person, it's like you build a wall. If you don't lie brick over brick, you cannot build the wall. The wall has to be built brick by brick. You have to build it. That's why people shrink from the truth in the beginning. It's not easy to face this truth. This truth is a burning thing. It is a reality like, you know, it kills all your illusions. You have the illusion that you want to build a shoe factory and become the biggest shoe manufacturer in the world. And then Ramakrishna puts you in samadhi and your mind goes like, fuck all the shoe factories. You know, it's like, that's not it. But your mind cannot renounce the shoe factory dream. You want to have 15 kids because you want to build a rugby team out of them. You want to be the first person in your city who have as many kids as holes in a golf course or something like this, you know. That's a dream. It's just a Svadhisthanistic dream. You are having some funny thing. And then you go in Samadhi. And suddenly everything falls apart. Like suddenly you realize that your dream was just one of the most stupid creations that your mind could create. But you have to kill it. Then you have to tell to your mind, okay, so I give up. You cannot give up so easily. I remember I have once had a, a very, very good friend, tantric partner, who actually taught me much of the yoga which you are learning here in Agama. And this woman was like pushed. She was like magnetically attracted by some mysterious thing to go deeper, deeper, deeper into spirituality. And she was a Scorpio and she was like a total fanatic practitioner. Like when she started doing, she really started doing practice. She was practicing really hard. And then... At some point she told me there was a stage in my life where she lost her job, she was fired from her job and then she said, oh, lucky me, I got fired from my job, now I go home and do yoga. And she started doing yoga like morning, afternoon and evening, you know. She had the whole day to herself, she did yoga, she didn't meet with anybody, she was just buying her groceries and going and doing her yoga. And she said, I was doing this intense spiritual practice and every day, I was crying for minimum one hour. I was just sitting there and crying. And it was an unbearable pain in my soul. I was at the same time happy and I was doing my practice. But I was crying. It was like somebody was tearing some root from me. It was like something was uprooted. It's like something from me was like surgically removed. You know, it was like something was dying in me. Every day something was dying in me and it was organically painful. I was sitting there. This woman had experienced her illusions dying, her dreams dying. She was ripening her apple. Her apple was getting very ripe. And it is my belief that this woman had reached a full state of enlightenment in her life, later in her life. She was one of the strongest spiritual practitioners that I have encountered in this life. And she never, she never made the slightest compromise in her spiritual practice. She never stood back. 
she always pushed more and more and more forward but remember therefore that this is the big issue people shrink from it you are not prepared sometimes the truth hurts it can hurt like this woman was not that she lost her boyfriend or she lost her job she was doing yoga and after doing yoga she was sitting and crying painfully for one hour like this blank with no object like crying without object she couldn't even explain why she was crying it was like a sort of a unbearable pain that some part of her was uprooted and thrown to the garbage like some part of her was dying and it was painful that's why the truth which means god which means our spiritual realization is like a mountain that has to be conquered slowly slowly you have to climb that mountain and it requires effort it requires surrender and since we have a little bit more time i'll go to the third paragraph and he says self self the ego the illusion that you are isolated from shiva of course he doesn't mean shiva but we in this school we use very much the language of kashmiri shaivism and the ultimate consciousness is called bhairava or shiva and it is what buddha would have called nirvana or the absolute and the fact that you say oh it's not me i can fall on my knees in front of god ultimately that's an illusion it's an illusion which serves you for a while the dualistic religious approach serves you for a while so many religious people have been served by it but there is a more radical truth and buddha expresses it here he says self this feeling that you are yourself and i am myself and that god is himself and that you are isolated and you have a meaning which is separated from the whole that somehow your dharma is not part of the big dharma that you are not part of the system that it's you you are having your ego wants very much to keep you isolated from everything and therefore this buddha calls self but not supreme self like atman self like separatedness the thing that you feel you are a separate entity self says buddha is a fever a fever like a disease and it makes you feverish because it generates rajas guna it generates desire i want this for me and i don't want this for me and all self is a fever it produces agitation disturbance self is a fever self is a transient vision like it will pass you are doomed to reach nirvana even if you kick your feet only it might happen 10 million years from now and until then you'll bang your head innumerable times against different obstacles that's the law of existence every spirit goes through this evolution but still it's a transient vision it won't last forever self is a fever self is a transient vision a dream that's maya here buddha says the fact that you think you are yourself separated from everything it's a dream it's a temporary vision and it's a fever it's a disease ultimately it's not wholesome 
This is not the whole truth. Self is a vision, a dream. But truth is wholesome. Truth is sublime. Truth is everlasting. Truth is wholesome, the holistic vision. This is the whole thing, not a separation. Yoga, unite things, union. This is, that's why the yogis called it yoga. It's union. There's oneness. When you unite things, what's the final result of all union? One. Everything gets united in the tip of the pyramid, in the one, which is the top of the universe. So truth is wholesome. Truth is sublime. Truth is everlasting. These are epithets to meditate. Try to think about it. God is wholesome, sublime, everlasting. If you don't like the word God, say the absolute is sublime. The, sublime, the absolute is everlasting. The absolute is wholesome. You can call it whatever you want, nirvana. You can call it Brahman. You can call it the truth in this way. Therefore, these are all a meditation. Because Buddha simply says, people who haven't seen it, they don't have a concept. Buddha is a messenger. He brings a message. He says, I have seen the truth. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to say it. He says, the truth is perfect, sublime, absolute, everlasting. There is no immortality except in truth. He said it before. There is no savior in the world except truth. There is no immortality. Only truth with a capital T lasts forever. Because that's Brahman. That's Bhairava. That's the Tao. That's the absolute consciousness. That's the only thing which lasts forever. Even the universe doesn't last forever. The universe may go in big bang, pulsation, expansion, contraction. Now it's the night of Brahma. Now it's the day of Brahma. Now it's Pralaya. Now it's creation. Now it's... Even the universe is not stable. The only everlasting thing is this superior concept, the truth itself. For truth alone abides forever. These are amazing meditations. When you get spiritually a bit low, take it and read it. Yeah? Truth, meditate on it. Repeat such sentences like mantras. Truth is wholesome. Truth is sublime. Truth is everlasting. There is no immortality except in truth. For truth alone abides forever. That is the truth as presented by Buddha. Of course, you need to have your amount of confidence in this truth. And there exists a percentage of people in this world who unfortunately cannot have confidence in anybody's truth. They don't believe in the truth of Krishna. They don't believe in the truth of Muhammad. They don't believe in the truth of Shiva or of Buddha or of Jesus. Anybody who has brought a spiritual message bringing the truth, because the truth is not visible, therefore it has to be brought, it's transcendent, 
and still there are people who in spite of the sayings of Buddha and so many others know the truth and the truth shall set you free and still there are people who don't wish they cannot, they don't have the urge it's not a curse many people see like oh if you don't have truth it's like you are cursed by God that's a very Svadistanistic religious view in which God is some punishing dude and the whole thing is a Walt Disney Mickey Mouse game it's not that it's simply that it's the fate of the soul the soul has its own ways of manifesting it animals have a sort of spontaneous faith there is an incredible story in the stories of the fathers of the desert where it says that I think it is in the Patericon from Sinai it's the ascetics who lived in today's Egypt in Sinai and they, they tell there an incredible story these are chronicles they say there was once a period where there was an incredibly long drought in case you don't know Sinai is a desert so when you say that there was a drought in Sinai it means it didn't rain like five years or something it means a real real drought real real lack of water so they say there was a great drought for a long time and like everything started dying like it was really over the top like even the plants and the animals could not survive even the plants and the animals which were adapted to the desert they could not survive and then the fathers of the desert some mystics who were living there they witnessed an incredible view incredible view maybe you think it's a fairy tale so incredible it is they said then all the animals all these irrational animals all the non-thinking non-sentient animals they simply walked on a high hill like there were herds of animals like in the Noah's Ark thing the animals walked high up on a hill and there they started roaring in a choir like buffaloes and whatever animals there are in that part of the world they started roaring to God to heavens like they went to the top of a hill and on the top of that hill they started simply roaring in agony like we are dying and it started raining that minute a rain started instantaneously like even the animals have a sort of intuitive presence because they have a supreme self and they have a sort of intuitive prescience which they cannot formulate in words or concepts because they don't have language they have a sort of intuitive thing that there is an order of the universe and when they are pushed against the wall to the ultimate limit the collective soul the totemic souls of the animals the egregores of the animals they reacted and they made the animals irrationally do something like the animals didn't think it they didn't know what they were doing they were simply pushed by an instinct to just go and turn their head up and starting roaring like we are dying and the divine consciousness answered instantaneously because there is compassion there is love but the funny thing is that human beings they forgot to be even like animals like if we'd be like animals if we'd be like 
We have a natural faith, a sort of a spontaneous, simple faith. But the problem is that the human being has added one incredible ingredient to the whole thing. Reason. The mind. And this mind is moving so much and in such stupid ways that for a number of people for whom their subconscious mind did not accumulate enough experience, if they didn't live enough lives as a human being, then their mind, first of all, takes over. It's like in the beginning they go through an excess of mind and not enough access to spirit. It's like their apple is really, really green and sour. Their apple is not ripe at all. And then such people, they're not cursed by God. It's almost inevitable. And all of you here who feel that you are blessed with some natural faith, Remember one day, once upon a time, probably you have been thinking too much and not having faith. Maybe it still happens in this lifetime. But some of you feel like, you know, for me there is a spontaneous voice inside me that guides me. I feel the spontaneous presence. I don't know why, but it's so easy for me to have longing and aspiration and faith And it's like I cannot be phased out by most of the things in this life. I keep going forward and that is the result of a long evolution. But it is 99.99% sure that once upon a time you also had this too much mind and not enough ripeness in the soul. That's why in spirituality we cannot condemn the people that don't have faith. It's a necessary stage in the evolution and we think that souls which are old, they are endowed with a natural resonance. There is a beautiful, endearing story in the Russian Christian mysticism where there is a story about one of the great saints of Russia. And I wouldn't want to be wrong but as far as my memory tells me, it was it is the famous Saint Nicholas who generated the Santa Claus myth in Christianity. So Saint Nicholas originally was a Russian-Ukrainian type of uh, or, or saint coming from that part. And he was really a great saint. And if it's not about him, I apologize. Then it's about another Russian saint uh, sharing some common characteristics with this one. And the Christian history tells us an incredible thing, like you can always shake your head and say, were these people inventing stories? Like who the heck invented these stories with 300 animals going on a hill and roaring desperately to some mysterious invisible God? Is this a made-up story? Like were people writing Alice in Wonderland books? Like what was that serving them, this story? So this can be another story, but here it is. This little Nicholas... He was born, of course, as an infant. And his mom noticed a very weird pattern. And which for most of you will sound uh, meaningless because you don't know a very important tradition in ancient Christianity and which still exists in the Russian Orthodox Christianity. Anybody who comes from that environment will immediately recognize what I say. The others of you will need to have some explanation. Little Nicholas, at the age of several days, 
like he was one day, two days old until that first, first landmark came, refused to suck milk from the breast of his mother every Wednesday and every Friday. Because in Christian traditional mysticism, Wednesday and Friday are Lenten days where Orthodox Christians and the Roman Catholics practiced it till a certain extent. They are not supposed to touch animal products. Those are two days where you are supposed to be vegan. And the only exception is if Christmas happens to fall on a Wednesday or on a Friday, then you are allowed to celebrate Christmas because Christmas is more important than the rule. But except a few such days, every Wednesday, every Friday are vegan days. Can you imagine a baby which is three days old and which instinctively feels that it's Wednesday and it doesn't take milk? Like this just a little animal with a brain which is completely unformatted and yet there is something so deep in that baby that it refuses to touch milk even from his mom. Like you're going to say, come on. That legend exists. Either it's a fairy tale or not. We cannot demonstrate it scientifically. But it's written in the life of this saint, Nicholas, I think, that even as an infant, it wouldn't touch milk on the Lenten days. Like, this guy was an ascetic from the womb of his mother. He came prepared. Whatever he had done in a previous life, maybe this Nicholas, in a previous life, he had been one of the fathers of the desert. And then when he got born, he was like 99% there. This sub- That's why I say faith. This is faith. That infant had a faith which required no explanation of any kind. It was a faith which was absolute there. This faith comes from a ripening of the soul. And that's why the only way to get it, if you don't have it, is practice. Practice, 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 practice. And then practice some more, because only practice can accelerate the natural course of evolution. If you don't practice, evolution goes at the speed of a snail. Takes a million years. The only way to accelerate evolution is through asanas, pranayama, meditation, kirtan, bhajan, karma yoga, all the things which you do every authentic form of spiritual practice accelerates one's evolution and therefore it will take you more and more into this spontaneous thing. Buddha calls it have confidence in the truth. Trust in the truth. In the next week, I think we are reaching to the end of this course of ours speaking about the last part of the discourse of Buddha, where he gives some amazing rules, which are the outcome of this, and that's where he speaks about goodness, auspiciousness, and his approach to compassion and kindliness. But that will be in our next satsang. Let us stop for now. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com 
or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.